Hi, writers. Welcome to another podcast episode. I'm Jim Thayer. Please allow me a moment of self-promotion. My new novel, Fagan and Miss Havisham, is now available at Amazon. It's there for e-readers such as the Kindle, and soon it'll be in the print version and an audio version. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one. The novel is the story of famous Charles Dickens characters taking place when they were younger than in his novels. So we meet the pickpocket Fagin and the thumper Bill Sykes when, from Oliver Twist when they were younger, and the crazy Miss Havisham and the unstoppable lawyer Jaggers from Great Expectations when they were younger and Police Inspector Bucket from Bleak House, the evil Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. I loved Charles Dickens' novels when I was young, and in Fagin and Miss Havisham, I mixed them all together earlier in their lives to see what happens. Please consider getting a copy of my new novel. You'll see the techniques we talk about in these episodes in action, at least the best I can do with them, and it'd be much appreciated. I'm reading Charles Stoss's science fiction novel, Saturn's Children. What a lesson it is in how to transport readers into a fascinating world, how to lift readers off their sofas and drop them into places where everything is new, anything can happen, and where characters are wonderfully drawn. What a pleasure. I read novels in all genres, and this feeling of being in the hands of a terrific writer is one of life's big rewards. This series of podcasts is designed to help us as writers do the same thing, lift our readers up and put them into our new world. We can do this in any genre, not just science fiction. How do good writers do this? That's the subject of these podcasts. Let's return for a few minutes to the topic of the last episode, which was dialogue in our stories, the conversation between characters. Mentioned last time is that argument is the best dialogue, the most interesting for readers. It's counterintuitive for new writers, including me long ago. Argument is more entertaining for the reader than romantic conversations or agreeing on some plans or flattery or a character dispensing information or anything else. But does this mean that dialogue in a novel should be all argument? No, of course not. Sometimes these things, a romantic conversation and the others, are needed for the plot. So how should we handle them? Here's the key. Dialogue that isn't argument should be, one, important to the story, and two, short. Most of our dialogue should be argument, because argument is conflict, and conflict is the essential ingredient in a story. Let's talk about a couple smaller, but I think still important, dialogue techniques. First, dialects. When I was, uh, my first, my very first novel uh, was uh, published here, and then it was published in Great Britain, the British publisher made only one comment to me, and that was that 
my dialogue from a Scots character, a person from Scotland, which was only four or five sentences, didn't sound like someone from Scotland. I wanted to say, I know what a Scot sounds like, and my mother's maiden name was Stuart. How can I not know? Uh, of course, I didn't say anything, and he asked for permission to change the dialogue uh, to what uh, to how a Scot sounds. I said, of course. But here's a here's a, a technique. A character's peculiarities of speech might be mentioned in the novel, such as he spoke with a Southern accent, or he had a French accent, or she had a Brooklyn accent. But then the words, the character's words, should be spelled normally, without the author trying to replicate the accent with odd spellings. So a character might well sound like, How y'all doing, honey child? But it nevertheless should be written, How are you doing, honey child? Another example is we all drop our G's in our daily talk and make other shortcuts with our sound. Uh, we say, I'm going to the store, darling, want to come? What do you say? But in written form, this is highly distracting to the reader. So it should be written, I'm going to the store, darling, want to come? What do you say? This, phon uh, this phonetic spelling is a, is a slippery slope, and if the writer begins doing it, there's no logical stopping point. If you use gonna for going to and wanna for want to, why not hadda for had to or hafta for have to or keppa, K-E-P-P-A for kept a or <laughs> dunno for don't know or cause, C-O-Z for because or watch you for what are you or where ya for where are you or gotta for got to or gotcha for got you or Gimme, G-I-M-M-E, for give me. What's that? What's that? I'm going driving in my car. What do you think, darling? It's a slippery slope, and once you begin, there's hardly a stopping, uh, stopping place. And, of course, there are exceptions. Wasn't and didn't and some others. Common contractions are usually spelled as they sound. Wasn't and didn't, of course. Some writers are, are famous for putting dialectic uh, dialogue in their novels, Mark Twain, of course. But times change, and uh, most readers find these attempts at, at uh, constructing a dialogue with spaces and uh, apostrophes and commas to be distracting. Here's another technique, and I call it New Person, New Paragraph. Generally, when one person speaks, it's in one paragraph. If a second character then speaks, acts, or thinks, another new paragraph is needed. Then, when the first character speaks again, another new paragraph is needed. So usually, you don't want one character speaking and another character acting in the same paragraph. A new paragraph is a signal to the reader that the spotlight has shifted to another character. Well, here's my cat Jack just jumped onto my desk. I wonder what he wants. Well, it's five minutes past noon. He wants lunch. I'm five minutes late. This cat's internal clock is more accurate than the National Atomic Clock in Boulder, Colorado. 
but he's going to have to wait a few minutes. Here's another technique. It's small, but it's important. And it involves dialogue tags. As we know, a dialogue tag is he said or she asked or some other variation. Such as, quote, where am I, question mark, and quote, Stan asked. When a character speaks more than one sentence, the dialogue tag should be placed before all the spoken sentences or after the first spoken sentence, but not at the end of several spoken sentences. It sounds complicated in in this formula, but it isn't. Put your dialogue tag before the first sentence or after the first sentence when a character is speaking more than one sentence. Here is the right way to do it. Quote, I have nothing to say about the crime, comma, end quote, John said, period. Quote, I am completely innocent, period, end quote. Dialogue tag is between his two sentences. Here's the second right way to do it. John said, comma, quote, I have nothing to say about the crime. I am completely innocent, end quote. Here's the wrong way to do it. Quote, I have nothing to say about the crime, period. I am completely innocent, comma, end quote, John said. I don't know why this is an important technique, but readers, I think the reason is readers want to know who's speaking right away. They don't want to, they don't want to wait until the end of three or four sentences to find out who's talking. And here's a, another small technique about uh, writing dialogue and the dialogue tag. A dialogue tag is Smith said in I Can't See the Ship, Smith said. I run across this all the time in my teaching, and uh, a writer who, and it's a, a writer who chronically inverts the subject and the verb in the dialogue tag. The subject is Jones, and the verb is asked in Where'd You Put the Rifle, Jones Asked. Sometimes writers invert Jones and asked, and they'll end up with asked Jones or some other variation. Quote, I dropped the handle, end quote, said Alex. Will the moon be out tonight? Asked Megan. I won't give you any more money, said Tolbert. Keep going, said the sergeant. It's not far now. For some reason, the human brain finds Smith said to be easier to take in than said Smith. The dialogue tag with the said or asked after the speaker's name, help me, comma, end quote, Smith said, is smoother. Now, once in a while, said Smith is fine to vary the texture. We should always be trying to vary the texture in a novel. But, but many writers, new writers, a remarkably high number, fall into the cadence of said Smith and said Jones and asked Mary, asked the driver, uh, as their dialogue tags and never get out of it. Uh, for the reader, it's, it's intrusive. The brain doesn't think said Jones. It thinks Jones said. That's our talk about dialogue. Uh, we'll return to it in later episodes. I want to turn now, uh, turn now to another term of art in, in writing and in, on the screen. It's foreshadowing. 
To foreshadow means to portend a future event, to give an anticipatory sign of something that will happen later in the novel. Foreshadowing is a promise to the reader. It lets the reader know something is going to happen. Usually it's an oblique promise, not set out clearly. But it, it is nevertheless a hint that the story will later turn on the hint. For example, if a character mentions he has a dog who growls at strangers, we can be assured later in the story that we will see the stranger, see a stranger approach the house. As William Sapphire suggested, the appearance early in a novel of a deadly weapon almost invariably means the weapon will be used later. Uh, in fact, foreshadowing with a weapon is so common that it's called Chekhov's gun. Quote, one must not put a loaded rifle on the stage if no one is thinking of firing it, and quote Anton Chekhov wrote in a letter in 1889. Generally, a writer cannot reel a, reveal a weapon early in the novel without using it later, and a writer cannot use a weapon later in the novel without having seen it early. Uh, and, and here's the key. This is true not only for weapons, but for many, many things in our story. Examples of foreshadowing can be found in most novels. For example, in Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea, the old man, whose name is Santiago, tells a story to the young boy, Madeline, about the old man's boat almost being torn in two by a huge fish. Clearly, Santiago is foreshadowing what is to come in the novel. Uh, a little later in the story, Santiago says, 85 is a lucky number. How would you like to see me bring one that is dressed out over a thousand pounds? The reader now waits for the battle between the old man and the fish that is surely to come. F foreshadowing can, be can lead to an event that is clearly predictable to the reader, or it can be much, a much murkier clue, such as when the jackal obtains a crutch. The reader knows the jackal isn't limping and doesn't need a crutch for support, and so knows something is up. But is the reader's astonished to learn later what the crutch is used for? The first uh, appearance of the crutch is, is foreshadowing. And then there's a different kind of foreshadowing. It's called a red herring. A red herring is a clue to the reader, but a false clue designed to distract the reader. Red herrings are used in all fiction, not just detective novels and mysteries. They, le they lead the reader to expect something, and then the novelist delivers something else to the surprise of the reader. Isn't that wonderful when that happens? I had to look this up. A red herring is a fish, a herring, that has been cured in salt brine or has been smoked, which often gives the fish a red tint. The phrase red herring uh, supposedly stems from the training of hunting dogs who were uh, taught to follow the scent of a fox or a badger. The trainer would drag several red herrings across the scent left by the fox to the, confuse the dog. The trainer was trying to get the dog to ignore distracting scents.
I know I do. Uh, I hope you do too. Here's a spoiler alert. Uh, plug your ears if you intend to read Scott Turow's early novel, The Great Presumed Innocent. Uh, one of the more famous red herrings is found in Turow's novel. Among the clues that he presents are fingerprints on a drinking glass. The fact the main character, Rusty, was having an affair with a deceased woman and semen was found on the dead woman. Rusty is as guilty as John Wilkes Booth, it appears to the reader. He was indeed having an affair with a woman, but it, it had ended long before her death. The reader begins to wonder if Rusty, who is speaking to the reader in first person, I, me, and mine, isn't lying to us, almost an unpardonable sin in first-person novels. The semen is a brilliant red herring, and I won't go into how it, it comes about. I believe, uh, as an aside, I believe in my entire life the proverbial hair on the back of my neck has risen only once reading a novel, no, twice. And the first uh, one of them is when Tarot reveals who the murderer is in the book in the last few pages. It's breathtakingly well done. Uh, the, the second time, the other time that the hair on the back of my uh, neck rose was when I was much younger and I was reading for the first time Bran Sto uh, Stoker's novel Dracula. And the narrator looks out the castle window to see an outside wall where the Count has left a window and is crawling down the outside of the castle wall head first. I still remember that, and it's been many years. It made the hair on the back of my head stand up. Boy, if you can do that, it's, it's a wonderful skill. Are there rules writers should follow regarding red herrings? Yes. Uh, first, they should be fair. What does that mean? Well, two things. A false clue should not be so contrived as to leave the reader angry that he fell for it, which is to say the clue must seem to come from the flow of the story and not represent a large detour in the novel. And second, the red herring should not be so clever, so well hidden, that the reader could never have guessed it, never have guessed it was a red herring. That's a fine balance, of course. A good red herring, uh, red herring is not so well disguised as to be impossible to guess what it means, but sufficiently disguised so the reader doesn't guess it. How is this balanced? How is this balance accomplished? It's with difficulty, but it's worth it. Readers love to slap their heads, if only metaphorically, and exclaim, I should have guessed it. Let's talk about coincidence in our novel. Coincidence. There's an old saying, a novel will support one coincidence, but not two. Uh, a, a coincidence is, of course, an unlikely occurrence of events, apparently arranged by chance. Coincidences are unlikely in real life, and when they occur in fiction, the plot is weakened. Readers of fiction want cause and effect. They want A, then B, not A, then 2. Still, 
Coincidences do occur in life and are permitted in good fiction, if used sparingly, once but not more. Charles Dickens was a master of the coincidence. As uh, Philip Pullman points out in his foreword to Oliver Twist, Dickens used coincidence he, uh, Pullman called outrageous, and he used them as a means to move the plot forward. Here's an example. When Oliver uh, is being taught by the artful Dodger to pick pockets, their very first victim is the oldest friend of Oliver's dead father. And when the evil Bill Sykes and Oliver travel to burgle a house in Chertsey, 20 miles southwest of central London, and there uh, were undoubtedly tens of thousands of homes between central London and, and Chertsey, Pullman points out, Sykes and Oliver find a home containing a precious silver plate and Oliver is shot and wounded and is taken by the kindly woman who lives there, who it turns out is the sister of Oliver's dead mother, that is, Oliver's aunt. Pullman says, quote, Coincidences do happen in real life, to be sure, but to offer them quite so blatantly is to stretch plausibility well past snapping point, end quote. Uh, Oliver Twist is a perfect novel. Uh, there's no profit in second-guessing Charles Dickens, but uh, fashions and techniques change over time in fiction. Here's a, another outrageous coincidence that resolves a plot point at the end of a story. Ryder Haggard wrote the seminal adventure novel King Solomon Mines and another one titled Alan Quartermain. Many movies have been based on them, at least loosely on them, including Raiders of the Lost Ark and Romancing the Stone. In Ryder Haggard's novel People of the Mist, Leonard Outram, the character, loses his inheritance and family home, his place at the university, and his, and his fiancée he loses within the first few pages of the novel. And then uh, Leonard Outram, swearing to regain his family estate, travels to Africa to seek his fortune. He spends eight years in Africa where he meets his true love, Juana, and engages in life-or-death adventures. At the end of the story, he and Joanna finally make it to a port where they hope to catch passage to England on a British mail ship. Joanna happens to lift a copy of the Times newspaper that has been brought from London and sees an advertisement. And this is eight years after uh, Leonard has left London. The advertisement is, If Leonard Outram, second son of Sir Thomas Outram, late of Outram Hall, who was lost last heard in the territory of the north of Delagoa Bay, eastern Africa, or, in the event of his death, his lawful heirs, will communicate with the undersigned, he or they will hear of something very greatly to his or her advantage, signed Thompson and Turner to Albert Court, London. Six weeks later, Leonard presents himself to the lawyer and learns that his fiancée married the wealthy fellow who had purchased the Outram estate, and both have since died, and she had, has left the estate in £100,000 to the love of her life, which is Leonard. The coincidence is this. Leonard and Joanna 
happened to be in port after eight years in Africa and finding a newspaper that has this advertisement. It worked back then. Uh, Ryder Haggard's novels are wonderful adventure stories. There are a few times when a coincidence may work. The novelist Nancy Cress points out, first, a coincidence that sets up a plot complication works often, rather than resolving it, which won't work. And second, when a seeming coincidence isn't really a coincidence in a story, but is explained as a logical occurrence later in the story. We have arrived at the end of this uh, podcast episode. Next time, we'll talk about uh, a number of techniques, including breaking the fourth wall, a term uh, of art for novelists and screenwriters. Uh, Until then, I hope this uh, finds you well and happy. This is Jim Thayer. Keep tapping those keys.